Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. All right, welcome everyone back to another edition of New Books and Education on the New Books Network. This is your host, Ryan Allen, and I'm excited today to bring you a book that I think is quite relevant to our current state of uh, political affairs and education. Uh, and this is the All right, welcome everyone back to another edition of New Books and Education on the New Books Network. This is your host, Ryan Allen, and I'm excited today to bring you a book that I think is quite relevant to our current state of uh, political affairs and education. Uh, and this is the book, it's called The Political Classroom, Evidence and Ethics in Democratic Education. And this is a critical social thought series from Rutledge, and it was published in uh, late 2014, and the authors are uh, Diane Hess and Paula McAvoy. And today I'm uh, uh, proud that we have uh, Dr. Hess from the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Education uh, on the show. Uh, Dr. Hess, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me, Ryan. And uh, just if you can maybe give me a, a brief background about yourself, how did you get into education? I understand you were a, a teacher before. Can you kind of maybe... Uh, let us know your, your academic and educational background, if you would. Sure. I was a high school teacher outside of Chicago for a number of years, and I was also president of the local teachers' union. And after doing that for um, many years, teaching social studies, uh, primarily political science and law classes, I went to work for a nonprofit organization called the Constitutional Rights Foundation Chicago, which develops materials and leads professional development programs for teachers who are interested in learning how to teach about political and constitutional and legal issues. I went to the University of Washington in Seattle to study with Dr. Walter Parker um, and uh, did my Ph.D. in curriculum and instruction with a, a specialty in the law school and then went to the University of Wisconsin in 1999 um, in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction. And while there, I continued my interest in uh, teaching and learning about controversial issues and did a number of studies, including a large longitudinal study that resulted in the book, The Political Classroom. Okay, fantastic. Can you kind of uh, tell me and tell our audience a little bit about that longitudinal study and I think you have mixed methods involved in there. Can you kind of just uh, let everybody know what, what that entailed? Sure. The longitudinal study started in uh, 2005, and I was interested in learning about how students experience a particular kind of civic education, which is a focus on discussing highly controversial political issues. And so I sought out um, schools initially in uh, two states, Illinois and Indiana, where teachers were uh, using this kind of approach to civic education and matched them with similar classes in their schools that did not use that approach and spent um, a number of years uh, collecting both quantitative and qualitative data, trying to understand what was happening in these classes, how 
uh, teachers were approaching it, and then followed the students two and four years out after high school. So it's an unusual study in the field of social studies and specifically in civic education because there's really rich qualitative data from when the students were in high school, but also very um, extensive data from hundreds and hundreds of kids um, two and four years out after high school. Wow, yeah, that's amazing. I mean, just the the sheer sort of uh, logistics of keeping track and and sh- I guess showing up when when you did. How did I mean? How did that work? Uh, I mean, if I can ask. Well, it worked with the help of people like you, Ryan. Lots of graduate students who were traveling um, throughout Illinois and Indiana, and then eventually we added the state of Wisconsin. So we'd have lots of people on the road, uh, you know observing in classes and interviewing students and interviewing teachers. I was, you know, in the schools myself a lot. And it was, it was really uh, kind of a interesting challenge, I think, in terms of just the logistics, as you would suggest. I mean, it was, you know, for me, you know, quite a very large study. But it was also really fun because we were in the classrooms of a number of really extraordinary teachers so one of the things that I learned from the study, and the co-author of the book, The Political Classroom, Paula McAvoy, also learned, and she was in a lot of the classrooms, is that teachers really, really matter. I mean, this shouldn't be a surprise to any of us, but we saw just extraordinary uh, teaching, teachers who were very, very skillful, very reflective about their own practice. And so we came away from the study with, I think, better understanding of what teachers do who are exceptionally good at this form of civic education. Sure. Can you maybe go into that a little bit, that idea of civics education? I think you call it, or I guess you dub it the political classroom. Can you maybe uh, talk about what that is a little bit more and maybe how that's different from potentially a normal classroom? Right. Well, so civic education is typically defined as a type of education designed to prepare people to participate politically and civically. Um, Often it's called democratic education when you're talking about preparing people to participate in uh, democratic political structure. In our book, The Political Classroom, we focus on a particular type of civic education that revolves around helping young people understand the contemporary and highly controversial political issues of the day. It's not the only thing that happens in these classes, but it's a major thing. And the theory behind this form of civic education is that what we want is for young people to understand, to appreciate, to be informed about, to form opinions about the actual political decisions that they're going to need to make as participants in a democratic society. And so the best way to do that is to make sure they've got a lot of um, complex understanding of how the government works and doesn't, as the case may be, but that they also are really deeply Um, embedded in and interested and engaged in actual political issues. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. How how, uh, diverse was your your sample? Uh, Did you have a lot of socioeconomic, uh, I guess regional within maybe city areas or uh, race as well? Can you kind of talk about that? Right. So the sample, as I mentioned, was in three states, Illinois, Indiana, and uh, Wisconsin. And those three states in 2005 were quite different from one another politically. Wisconsin at the time was what we would call a quintessential purple state, um, beginning to become highly polarized. Today it's probably the most polarized state in the United States. Illinois was a bluer state. Indiana was a redder state. 
And that really mattered quite a bit because one of the things we were interested in was ideological diversity, both within the communities in which these schools were housed, within the schools, within the classrooms, and among and between the students. So the kind of diversity that this study focuses on is one that typically isn't given very much attention in uh, research and education, which is ideological or political diversity. That being said, we had quite a diverse sample. We had schools that were public schools and private schools within the public school sector. We had charters and schools that were not charters. We had religious schools um, and other private schools that were not religious schools. We had schools in cities and suburbs and rural areas. So we think we had a pretty uh, good mix of, of schools. And um, our student sample roughly mirrored the state in which they were embedded. Mm-hmm. So we had um, you know, lots of, of kids who uh, were of different race, of different social class in particular. You know, at a time, um, in a time of growing economic inequality, uh, the social class of students in ma- matters in a lot of ways. We've known this for a long time. What we sought to do in this study was to get a better understanding of how social class matters in terms of preparation for political and civic engagement. Mm-hmm. So having that diversity of social class was really important. Right, right. I think you hit it on the head when you talked about the sort of growing uh, political uh, partisanship or polarity. And it just seems more difficult than ever. And I can't imagine, uh, I'm not in a classroom myself, not, well, not uh, high school or, or uh, I, I teach some undergrads, but much different than I think in, in a public school setting, especially uh, teaching when they're, when they haven't really gotten this kind of civics uh, before, they're getting it for the first time, to really go out and, and teach politics without having some sort of your own uh, a bias in, in the teaching. Can you maybe talk about how uh, you sort of gauge that idea of, um, of sort of how you can play both sides or teach both sides of, of the arguments? Well, one of the things that we did in the book was to focus on the ethical questions that teachers who are approaching civic education in this way uh, need to deal with. And one of those ethical questions is what role their own political views should play in their teaching. And we concretize this with the question, should teachers share or withhold their own political views during discussions of these controversial political issues? And what we found, uh, not surprisingly, is that there's a lot of difference um, among how teachers approach this. We had teachers in the sample who were absolutely resolute about never sharing their political views with students, and their students uh, didn't think that they knew their political views. We had other teachers who said, oh, I never share my views, but their students thought they knew their views. And in some cases, we had classes in which half the teachers or half the students said we know and the other half said we didn't know. And of those who said they knew, half thought the teacher was conservative and half thought thought the teachers were liberal. So this uh, became a much more complicated question than I think people previously had understood it to be. But that being said, what we, we did come away with is that that question, the question of whether teachers should share or withhold their political views, is not a question for which there are firm and clear rules, but in fact is a question that requires professional judgment. We were in classrooms where teachers did share their views, and we thought that was done in ways that were really uh, pedagogically quite interesting and sound. We were in other classes in which teachers did not, 
and we thought that worked as well. It didn't mean that anything goes, but it meant that the context in which the teachers were uh, teaching, the composition of the students, uh, the students' political views, etc., uh, really mattered, and teachers had to take all that into account. We didn't encounter any teachers who believed that their job was to get students to adopt their own political views. Um, I know such teachers exist uh, from my own experience as a high school teacher, but I, we don't think there are very many of them, and we didn't have any in the study. Sure. Um, that being said, teachers are political beings, and we knew about the political views of the teachers because we surveyed the teachers uh, using the same questions we used with the students. So we knew, for example, if we were in the third period class at Adams High School, what the students thought about particularly controversial issues, what the teacher thought about those same issues, how much variation there was, etc. So we have a tremendous amount of information that helps us understand the political context in which this work was occurring. Mm. Okay, very good. And I think you kind of already started going to, but you, you, you break the book up into three different sections. Uh, first, you kind of talk about the study, uh, next the cases, and then sort of the professional judgment. Um, I, I wonder if we could go back to maybe talk about some of the cases that, that you sure. have in the book. And you mentioned Adams High. Uh, can you kind of talk about why that case was uh, special or, or, or what's sort of interesting of, about that case for, for the book purposes? Sure. Adams High is a high school in a working class community about 40 miles outside of a large city. It's a, a racially and ethnically diverse school. Um, about 40% of the students are Latino. It's got a tremendous class diversity, which, as you know, is quite unusual because most schools, uh, high schools especially, are highly segregated by race and class, and this one was not. The teachers at Adam High had invented a form of civic education about 20 years ago that they called the legislative semester. Mm -hmm. Students uh, were required to take a one-semester government class as seniors. That class was not tracked. Um, there was no AP section or no honors section, and uh, there would be several hundred students a semester taking the class. There were a number of different teachers teaching it, and the students formed a legislature where they worked across the various sections of the class during a semester to operate as a legislature. The students developed bills. They uh, had committee meetings. They had full sessions of the legislature. They appointed... Um, leadership, elected leadership, etc. It's really a phenomenally interesting approach. Uh, quite an elaborate simulation that students absolutely loved it. I mean, it was one of the most exciting things I've ever seen. And it required an enormous amount of cooperation among these teachers. You know, oftentimes we have a vision of a highly su successful teacher as a lone wolf, you mm -hmm. know, someone who gets behind his or her classroom door and kind of does... Uh, what he or she thinks is the best thing to do. That was not the case at Adams High. At Adams High, these teachers worked collaboratively year after year after year to refine uh, this particular approach, to adjust it as they needed to, as their student population uh, changed, and as the political issues of the day changed. And it's now spread to a number of other schools. We think there are about 20 schools in the Midwest that have adopted this particular form of civic education. So we had a blast at Adams High. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Uh, I, I'm just thinking you know, th these critical thought exercises that uh, last a whole semester or year, however long, 
and and I'm thinking my state in Oklahoma, what's going on right now? I'm just like, oh, I wish we could, you know, maybe get some of that, uh, get that there. Uh, how about with uh, uh, these other two cases you have? You introduced two teachers, uh, Mr. Kushner and then uh, Mr. Walters. Can you kind of talk about uh, what what made these uh, two teachers special? Sure, Mr. Walters teaches in uh, an evangelical Christian high school. It's very small um, in uh, outside of a university community. Teachers um, who teach at this school, including Mr. Walters, are very religious, um, as you would imagine. And the students and their parents need to sign a contract saying that they've been personally saved in order to get into the school. So it's not just a typical religious school, but it's it's quite a quite a religious school, yeah. let's put it that way. Mr. Walters was an extraordinary social studies teacher who was interested in making sure that his students who were raised in a very politically homogenous environment uh, were exposed to points of view uh, that were different than what they typically encountered while not um, upsetting their faith. So he was walking this kind of interesting line mm-hmm. between, on the one hand, wanting to build a political autonomy on the other hand, wanting to make sure that he was doing his job as a teacher in an evangelical Christian school of, of building uh, more understanding of and respect for the students' religious views. So we uh, included a whole chapter on Mr. Walters in the book because we thought he did really an interesting job of walking that line. And we were also interested in you know, what it looks like to, uh, on the one hand, approach civic education from kind of a liberal democratic theory, which is that you've got multiple and competing points of view, that you want people to come to their own views, and yet on the other hand, to be embedded in this highly religious environment in which parents and teachers are very interested in making sure that students adopt the views of the faith. Yeah, the degree of difficulty for that, I think, is is much harder maybe than, than even just your normal uh, public school, especially to do it you know, really, uh, really nicely and, and bring in all the different ideas. So that's really great. How about, uh, how about Mr. Walters? Uh, what does he have uh, for, for this book? Well, so Mr. Walters, again, who's the teacher in the, the religious school, is oh. really an, an interesting guy because he uh, wanted his students to be exposed to different points of view. Now, Mr. Kushner... We're sorry, was, yeah, Mr. Kushner. No, that's yeah. okay. Mr. Kushner... Um, in some ways taught in a, in a school that on its face looks remarkably different, in fact, the opposite of Mr. Walter's school, but was actually quite similar in some key ways. So Mr. Walters taught in a public high school in a university community, one of the most progressive, um, politically progressive communities in the United States. There were three precincts that fed into this high school, and those three precincts were among the... Uh, precincts in 2008 and 2012 that had the largest majorities for uh, Barack Obama. Very, very uh, left-wing precincts, very left-wing parents, very left-wing kids. And so Mr. Uh, Kushner uh, was trying to make sure that his kids were also exposed to multiple and competing views. So one thing that really surprised us is here are these two schools, a really religious school and then, uh, you know, traditional public school. You would think they would be so different from one another, and yet Mr. Walters and Mr. Kushner had a similar challenge, which was these kids were being raised in 
very homogenous political communities. They were kind of marinating in their own ideological stew, so to speak. And we ended up calling these schools like-minded schools, which meant that in the classes, when we polled the students on their views on political issues, um, 70% or more of the students had the same views. Um, And so these like-minded schools and like-minded classrooms were uh, interesting places. They presented some opportunities, and they also presented challenges. So what we know politically is that if you live in a politically like-minded environment, um, which, so for example, where I live in Chicago is a very politically uh, homogenous environment, you're much more likely to be politically active. So the people who are politically active are surrounded by other people who are politically active and are surrounded by other people who have the same political views. So um, like-mindedness causes political participation. And that is both a good thing because we want people to politically participate and a challenge, right? Because if you're in these like-minded communities, what you're not hearing is views that are different from your own, which means that the views of people in these like-minded communities over time tend to become more partisan, more polarized, more extreme. Mm -hmm. This is what happened in these classrooms as well. And interestingly enough, as we report in the book, when we followed students from these classrooms two and four years out after high school, we realized that when we controlled for all sorts of other things, social class, etc., that these students were much more likely to participate in all sorts of ways, especially as voters. So uh, we saw this phenomenon that we're seeing in society as a whole. So back to these teachers, Mr. Kushner and Mr. Walters, um, saw these homogenous political communities as a real problem, and they wanted to expose students to differing points of view, even though they, the teachers, had point, uh, political views that were very similar to the communities that they were housed in. Mm-hmm. Uh, political, the religious teacher, Mr. Walters, was actually a little bit more moderate than his students, uh, but Mr. Kushner was the most left-wing uh, teacher in the study. So here we have these teachers who have political views that are similar to their students, similar to their parents, and yet the teachers say, this would be a problem if all these students heard were these views. So they went to great lengths, which we explain in these two chapters, to make sure that students uh, had to encounter views that were different than the majority in which they were uh, embedded. Okay, that's, that's fantastic. Can you maybe talk about what were the students, if you, if you can uh, single that out, what were the students' sort of reaction to hearing these uh, different sorts of views? Are they appreciative, or did, did this come back in, in the future? Because I know you, you interviewed them you know, four years out. Can you kind of talk about that, if you could? Yeah, it's a great question, Ryan, because it wasn't the case that students immediately recognized that it was a good thing to hear views that were different than their own. Um, and that's no different than the rest of us, right? Uh, oftentimes, when, especially when we live in communities that are politically homogenous, it can be literally shocking to realize that it's not the case that everyone agrees with us. Um, and that was the case for these students as well. You know, sometimes they would just be so surprised when they had to encounter these uh, very, very different points of view. So, for example, Mr. Kushner had students who, for the most part, were in total agreement that um, abortion should be legal uh, in the United States and that restrictions on abortion should be very minimal. Um, He brought in a speaker who uh, represented an organization that had very contrary views, and initially the students 
really didn't like it. Um, they were offended by what the speaker had to say, not because the speaker was offensive, just because the views were so different. But when we interviewed the students two and four years out after high school, they looked back with appreciation. And they said, you know, Mr. Kushner was one of the few teachers in that school where um, it, who really cared about making sure that we had to reflect on our own views and that we had to have our own views critiqued and we had to consider the views of others. One of the students, um, when we interviewed him, we asked, well, what, what happens in other classes in the school? And the student said, well, you've got to realize that in this school we've seen every Michael Moore film twice. <laughs> and so when this uh, student looked back, you know, after high school, uh, he said, look, this was really great. Because, you know, we, a lot of us did leave this very homogenous community. And even if we didn't, we uh, had an experience, you know, having to encounter different views. Of course, that was harder to pull off in those schools than it was in these other schools that we called non-like-minded or purple schools. If you think about, you know, purple, red, blue states. So we talk about purple, red, blue classrooms. And in those more ideologically mixed schools, like Adams High School was one of those, um, teachers had a much greater challenge, which was how to keep the lid on, mm. right? They wanted to make sure that they didn't have so much um, political debate that uh, it would become uh, not civil. Right. And so those teachers focused a huge amount on how do you deal with people who are different from you um, in ways that are respectful in ways that are civil, whereas the teachers in Mr. Kushner and Mr. Walter's class, for the most part, had to focus on how do we insert into these homogenous environments uh, political difference. Right. How about, I guess the next natural question is, how about parents? Do the teachers face, uh, I mean, I'm I'm assuming that, that it's very difficult sometimes when you're teaching these things that, you know, you get phone calls from parents and, and opposition from local communities, potentially. Even. Can you kind of talk about uh, that role? It's a, it's a really good question, especially since, Ryan, you mentioned a minute ago that you were from Oklahoma. Right. And uh, for those listeners who aren't keeping up with Oklahoma political news, yesterday the Oklahoma legislature voted to ban the teaching of advanced placement U.S. history because they believe that the revised uh, curriculum from the college board uh, focuses too much on what's wrong with the United States and not, not enough on what's right with the United States. And I think that represents the fact that, you know, social studies is one of these, and history, these are classes that are deeply embedded in the culture wars, and the culture wars uh, have not gone away. You know, that, that we fight about what is in the curriculum because the curriculum of the schools uh, is important to people. And so there, one way to look at this is to say that well, gosh, what a pain in the neck to have all these fights about the content of the curriculum. Another way to look at it is that it reinforces that no matter how much we question whether people care about education, evidence that they do care about education is that they're willing to fight about the content of the curriculum. So I actually think that there's somewhat of a silver lining um, in some of these battles because it at least reinforces for us that people think that schools do matter. Uh, That being said, Uh, One of the challenges is that parents often don't want their children to hear uh, political views that are different than their own. And so that can create a challenge in an approach to education like in the political classroom where, by definition, you want to uh, have multiple and competing views and you want 
those views to be about issues that are, you know, contemporary and really important. Sometimes teachers don't want or parents don't want those issues talked about in school at all. Mm. Um, and other times they're happy to have those issues talked about as long as uh, their kids are only hearing one point of view. So teachers had to engage with that problem. And that problem is getting worse, not better, because uh, we're living in more politically polarized communities. Uh, that being said, the, the teachers in our study who were the most effective had remarkable luck uh, dealing with that problem. And they did it in, in three ways. One is that they had the respect of parents and administrators because, quite frankly, they were really good teachers. And that they constantly... Uh, reflected on their own practice, and they were really careful to make sure that they didn't make what I would call rookie mistakes when doing this kind of work. Um, you know, you this is it's serious work, and you have to take it seriously. You have to look very carefully at the materials that you're um, having students use to prepare for discussions and for simulations. You have to be really fair-minded, and most of the teachers in our study were really fair-minded. That they were not interested in as I said, indoctrinating students into a particular point of view, they were interested in making sure students were able to uh, think seriously about differing points of view. So we actually had very few examples in the study of parents complaining. However, we interviewed the teachers about this, and they all of them had had some you know, right. example right. of this. And they reported a couple things. One is that if the school administration had their backs... It really mattered. So, you know, we know that school leaders make a huge difference. And with this kind of teaching, school leaders have to understand why it's important for teachers to do this. They have to understand what it looks like when done well. They have to make sure that teachers um, are provided opportunities to get better at doing this. You know, that teachers uh, go to professional development uh, workshops, etc., to to learn how to do it. They really have to support it. And then when parents call it a complaint, oftentimes the complaint initially goes to the principal. And if a principal can explain, here's why we do this in this school, and here's why we think it's important, oftentimes that would calm the parent down. Sometimes the parents just misunderstood, mm. you know, that they, that they heard a snippet, you know, a student would go home and say, well, you wouldn't believe what Mr. Green said in class today. Right. And, and that would cause the parent to... to uh, misunderstand what in fact did happen. You know, that being said, um, again, we know that teachers do make mistakes. Right. And there are times when, when teachers uh, cross all sorts of lines, and uh, that, that's really damaging. Mm. Because when teachers do that, it often causes administrators who are not very effective to just want to shut down the whole thing. Sure. sure. And so it's not unusual to have administrators, especially uh, inexperienced administrators decide that the way to deal with controversy is to ban it. Right, right. Which well, is fact, it's highly controversial, right? Sure, no, like, absolutely, absolutely. So if if we could then, if, if we could, how can we support these types of classrooms? What can we do? I mean, it's, it's a very difficult situation, I think, as everyone can recognize. Then, then how do we make it maybe easier, and how do we get more of these types of classrooms in, in our school? It's, it's a really great question, Ryan, and, and thanks for asking it, because I think that we need to focus as much as we can on what supports good practice in schools. 
and not expect teachers to bear the brunt of this on their own. So in the final chapter of the book, Paula McAvoy and I outline a variety of things that, that we learned from the study really make a difference. So one is that there are civic education organizations in the United States that provide lots of support for teachers to do high-quality work. Um, some of these organizations are local. Some of them are state organizations. A number of them operate nationally. So in our study, uh, we had lots of teachers who are participating in a program called the Choices for the 21st Century Program, which is housed at Brown University but operates nationally. And uh, we also had a lot of teachers who were in a program called the Youth Summit Program, sponsored by the Constitutional Rights Foundation in Chicago. And there are not, lots of other organizations like this. There's one uh, called Street Law. There's an organization here in Chicago called the Mikva Challenge. There's Facing History in Ourselves, uh, et cetera. There's a Constitutional Rights Foundation in Los Angeles, uh, the Center for Education and Law and Democracy in uh, Denver, et cetera. So these organizations um, are nonprofit organizations that their mission is to help teachers do uh, high-quality civic education. They prepare materials. They lead professional development sessions, et cetera. So what we found is that the teachers in our study who were really doing the best work had gotten a lot of professional development from these organizations. So these were teachers who were not holed up in their classrooms thinking that they could you know, keep up with things on their own. Instead, these were teachers who got out and, and learned and really uh, saw that as a primary mission of their teaching. So that's one thing. We need to support these civic education organizations. Um, and a number of them are really struggling because we used to federally fund these organizations, and all that federal funding was cut out when earmarks were cut out a number of years ago. So these organizations have had to make a very quick transition to uh, public funding, from public funding to private funding, which is, you know, hard to do. And so we as citizens need to be supporting these organizations. That's one thing. Parents, we talked about parents before. So I think that it's really important for parents to support teachers in doing this. And it's important not just to support, but parents need to demand. So if parents have uh, children in schools where they're not getting high-quality civic education, they need to ask why not. And they need to demand it because we know that civic education really makes a difference. And in some schools, it's been um, cut out of the curriculum, especially in middle schools, where the No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top have uh, caused a lot of schools to narrow their curriculum. And when the curriculum gets narrowed, the first thing that goes is social studies and art and science. And then all of a sudden, you don't have students getting these rich opportunities they need. To receive. So parents need to demand high-quality civic education. As I said before, administrators need to uh, support teachers, and we need to support administrators. Just like teachers need professional development, administrators need professional development. And last but not least, um, I want to go back to what I started with, is that teachers really, really matter. Um, this is not cookie-cutter teaching. This is not... Uh, teaching that's what I call pack-and-play teaching, where you can just hand teachers materials and say, you know, go go do this. This is the kind of teaching that uh, demands uh, lots and lots of, of support. People need 
to be taught how to do this. They need to continually reflect on their own teaching. They need to be provided high-quality materials. And uh, we need to recognize that, you know, if we really care about the quality of civic education, then there's nothing more important than supporting teachers and helping them get better at their practice. And one of the things that was interesting to us is that the teachers in our study um, really were in it for the long haul. Um, you know, we have a, a paragraph at the end of the book that talks about why we think teachers are so important that um, I think in, in many ways sums up the major finding from the study is that, you know, the teachers who are doing this high-quality work are not uh, missionaries. They're not passing through on the way to another career. Um, these are, are people who are what I call professional teachers. They're, they've been uh, very well educated. They uh, are very uh, serious about their work. But when we ask them, well, why do you do this? Not just why do you teach, which we did ask them, but why do you do this kind of teaching? Why are you trying to create these political classrooms in which students are focusing on questions related to how should we live together? And the teachers um, said three things. One thing they said is they really thought it was uh, important work. It was part of the mission of why they became teachers, that they believed in, in uh, democracy, that they believed in how important it was that schools should take up their historic role of preparing young people for political and civic engagement. So they, they had a, a mission. Um, they also were intrigued by the content themselves. These were people who really knew a lot about uh, political issues of the day. They spent a long time uh, preparing to do this kind of work, and they spent hours every day keeping up to date. But the other thing, and the thing I liked the most, because it reminded me of why I went into education and why I'm still educate, in education, is uh, these teachers really had fun. Hmm. You know, they, okay. were, they were really engaged in what they did. It didn't mean that every day was fun. It didn't mean that every period was fun. It didn't mean that everything went well and that these teachers were not Pollyannas. As a matter of fact, a number of them were activists in their schools and communities. But, but teachers... Uh, who do this kind of work, when you create a classroom in which you're giving kids the opportunity to talk about important things that matter, uh, you know, that's really interesting. It's cognitively interesting, it's emotionally interesting, and that adds up to engaging work. And we often had teachers come out of class and say, wow, that was really fun. And at the end of the day, if you can do high-quality work about a mission that you think is important, uh, and you're having fun. I don't know what could be better than that. Well, that's a, that was a fantastic, I think, uh, exclamation point on on sort of the book and, and, and wrapping it up. So I I do appreciate that. Uh, and you know, we do have to remember. I think a lot of people who are listening are educators in, in education. But that last point, uh, I wasn't expecting, and, and I'm glad you I'm glad you said it. You know, have fun, right? This is you know n- not just about a, a being a job. So uh, definitely take that to heart. Um, if you could, can you maybe talk about your next sort of project or what, what do you have coming up uh, on, on, on the pipe? I know this, you know, you just basically got done with this, but uh, uh, as we all know, the next project is just around the corner. So what, what do you have for us next? 
Thanks for asking, Ryan. So um, coming up next, we're going, and when I say we're, I'm talking about the co-author of the book, Paula McAvoy. Paula's an educational philosopher, and she's been at the Spencer Foundation, where I currently um, work in addition to being a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's been there for a number of years, but now she's returning to UW-Madison to be the uh, staff uh, director of a new ethics and education uh, center that has is has just it's actually just opening on March 1st um, and in that role um, she's going to be doing a lot of work to uh, help academics and and teachers uh, and others uh, think about ethical issues in education and as you know in this book the political classroom we focus a lot on these ethical issues and so what what Paula's going to be doing from her perch at Wisconsin and what I'm going to be doing for the next year or so um, related to this book is to get it out um, in the hands of teachers. So what we're doing is we're creating materials that can be used by teachers to help them both learn how to teach this way and also to think about these ethical issues. So we are really um, trying to come up with ways of working uh, very, very closely with teachers, both teachers in high schools and also teachers in, in higher education. So what we decided to do is instead of moving immediately on to other projects, although we both do have other projects that we're going to start working on, is to make sure that the work that was done to put together this book doesn't just end with the book. So, for example, we have a website that will be going up soon, the politicalclassroom.org. Uh, and that website will have all sorts of materials that can be used in workshops with teachers. So, for example, this question of, well, should I share or withhold my own political views? We think there are good ways of helping teachers think through that. And so we're, we're working on how to do that. And uh, we're going to be out doing, you know, a lot of direct work with teachers. Last night, Paul and I both spent a couple hours with teacher education students at DePaul University here in, in Chicago. Um, and we're going to do do a lot of that all over the place. So we're really looking forward to that. Um, more, more, more concretely on the scholarly front, Paula is working on a new book having to do with ethical issues related to sex education in the United States. And I'm just starting the research that will form the corpus of another book that's called Courting Democracy. And that book will come out uh, no time soon, I can promise you. <laughs> uh, but, it, but it will probably be out in three or four years. I'm going to do a major Delphi study that will form the empirical basis for that book. So we both have new projects that we're moving on to, but the new projects relate to a lot of the sure, same sure. kinds of things that we um, are working on with the political classroom. We've uh, done uh, a lot of speaking about the, the research and, uh, and about the teachers and we've, we've really in, enjoyed that. Um, I think we've been on 35 different radio stations in the last month, nice. uh, from Fox News in southern Utah to uh, a labor channel in Ohio where the mantra was, where the left is right. Uh, so we've, we've had to experience ourselves what it looks like to encounter multiple and competing perspectives. Let's just put it at that. Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, that's, those resources and the website, we'll, we'll be sure to link uh, on our page whenever... Uh, it comes up, and I, I hope my uh, fellow educators back in Oklahoma uh, maybe can have access to, to some of their resources that, that you're going to put up. 
so, uh, uh, Dr. Hess, I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast today, and I encourage everyone to check out uh, The Political Classroom, Evidence and Ethics in Democratic Education, uh, from, once again, Dr. Hess and Paula McAvoy uh, from uh, uh, Rutledge 2014, and we'll provide a link and uh, to all our listeners out there. I uh, hope you learned something. Thank you.